Welcome to Her Story on a Plate, a place for real talk about real bodies. Let's dish about our complex relationships to food and bodies. We are two experts in the field coming at this from an anti-diet, your body holds wisdom approach. This podcast is all about changing the conversation we have in our heads and culture so that we can embrace ourselves fully. We are thrilled to have Rachel Zimmerman with us today. She's an award-winning journalist and has written about health and medicine for more than two decades. She's a contributor to the Washington Post, previously worked as a staff writer for the Wall Street Journal, and a health reporter for WBUR, Boston's public radio station. Her essays and reporting have been published in the New York Times, Vogue.com, New York Magazine, O Magazine, The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, and Slate, among others. She is co-author of The Healing Power of Storytelling and The Doula Guide to Birth, and has a powerful brand new book that's just come out entitled Us After, A Memoir of Love and Suicide. Welcome, welcome, Rachel. I'm so thrilled to have you on Her Story on a Plate. And I want to start by saying how we met. So in 2013, you were writing an article for WBUR about Angelina Jolie and the BRCA breast cancer gene. And somehow in your sleuthy, brilliant way, you found me because I have the BRCA cancer gene and I had had a double mastectomy a few years before. So you and I met actually at a really pivotal time in my relationship with my body. And so I was super excited to invite you here because I really wanted you to come and talk to us because you've navigated the world of being in a body from the perspective of being a health and medicine journalist. And of course, as a woman, right, you're navigating your own journey of being in a body. Plus, you have this additional layer of having two daughters. And right when we have daughters, we want them to have a better relationship with their bodies than we have with ours. And you have a very unique and up-close perspective on loss and grief and trauma, which we want to dive into more. Yeah, welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Nina and Jenny, for having me on the program. Yes, I remember that Angelina Jolie story. It seems like it was a very long time ago. And then we kept coming across each other in various permutations. Mm -hmm. But yes, so I just am so excited to talk about this topic. It's so important and it's our lives, really. Well, so Rachel, the way that I came to know you was that I, and I didn't even really know you, was through the wonderful article that you did in the Washington Post about trauma, intergenerational trauma. Reporters and journalists have their own style and how they figure out what they're going to write about. But I am curious to know what had you choose the subject because it really resonated with so many people. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, actually, that topic, my editor at The Post said they're interested in a story about intergenerational trauma. And I sort of said, well, that's kind of broad. What way in would you like me to pursue? And she just sort of said, like, why don't you do some reporting and see what's, you know, salient and what's, you know, how are millennials thinking about this? We keep hearing about intergenerational trauma. It's 
you know, if you saw the Oscar winning movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, mm-hmm. it's basically a story of mother daughter intergenerational trauma. And Oprah wrote a book on it with a doctor. And we just keep hearing about it in all different manners. And it's sort of filtered into the popular culture. And so I just started reporting and it became clear that there are so many levels of intergenerational trauma, it being researched on a biological cellular level, you know, what is the trauma we pass along genetically? It's how we grew up, literally our relationships with our parents and family members. There's that type of trauma. And then there's the collective trauma of, you know, the legacy of racism and all types of our treatment of quote unquote others and oppression and colonization, et cetera. So intergenerational trauma really impacts people on so many levels. And so I just tried to sort of touch on the magnitude of it and the scope and breadth. And yeah, it did really, it did resonate because not everyone has experienced all manner of that kind of trauma, but many people have experienced their own personal trauma that they can relate to. And it's becoming something that we can increasingly talk about, less stigma, a little less taboo. Yeah. And I think it's important to name in this conversation that one form of trauma, in addition to the scores of others that there are, is diet culture. It's actually traumatic for some in the way that it affects people in their everyday, but also it has an intergenerational aspect to it. Absolutely. Nina and I always talk to each other about the fact that this is a prominent subject in all of the clients that we see because, and it's not a blame game. See, I think it's important to say that. I mean, if you are the victim of any kind of trauma, it's up to you to blame whomever you like. But in the conversation about intergenerational trauma, it isn't about point finger pointing. It's about understanding that who, who you are and all of the things that influence who you are and the decisions you make are in some way also influenced by things that have preceded you and that it has a neurobiological basis and it has an exposure basis and it's what you were exposed to just being a person in a, in a family system and in other, yes. and many other systems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, I grew up, you know, in the seventies in Brooklyn, single mom. My parents were divorced when I was five and, you know, my mother was a product of her culture. And I'll tell you a story. When I was 15, my mother took me to health manor is what it was called, where we wow. literally health manor. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was called a health manor. Okay. And we fasted for a week and I was 15. And the last two days, you know, they gave us a little bowl of lettuce to get our strength up. And all we ate during the day was like a glass of watered down orange juice. And this guy would come in every morning. He called himself a doctor, but I later researched and he was not an MD and he would take our pulse. And I sort of couldn't believe that my mother took a 15 year old kid along with her on this. And I recently said, like, what were you thinking? Why did you take me to this place where we didn't eat for a week? And she's, she said, well, you wanted to go. You know, and I remember wanting to go, but what got me to the point and 
adding insult to injury, I believe we went over Thanksgiving. And so we came home and I just remember that feeling of like, I'm so powerful. I lost weight and everybody else ate, stuffed themselves eating turkey and, you know, stuffing. Yeah. And that's the experience, right? That's the trauma. And that's where weight stigma comes from, right? Because listen to the beauty of what you said, right? If I feel thinner in my body, then I have power, right? And and, and ain't that it in in a nutshell, what what it's all about, right? And it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't that my mother ever said, you need to lose weight. You, you know, she never had to say it. It was all just me picking up on the cottage cheese and the low fat ice milk and the, the looks, if we talked about French fries and it was just the power of a child watching their adult role models, you know? There didn't have yeah. to be even any words. And I no. see that with my daughters. Like I try so hard to be like, oh, we can have anything, everything in moderation. Like, but they see how I take a very, very, very tiny sliver of a cake and they make fun of me. They like do actually have an act, my two girls, of like me eating cake. It's like, oh, I'll have just one crumb, please. You know, and so it's really what you do. Like you can say whatever you want, but they they see what you do. They see your actions. But what you're saying is so important, right? They see, they're watching. And how our relationship with food and body doesn't need to be told to us. It's actually like passed along. We learn that our the size of our body is our social currency. Nobody says, oh, if you are small, you have power. It just is fed to us, pun intended. They say that too. They say that in every magazine and show and image. So it's both spoken and unspoken. So it's important that it be put in the same category as everything else, right? Skin color and heritage and height, believe it or not, is considered to be a predictor of success, which is ridiculous and silly. And so body size. And so it is all appearance driven. And that is its own form of trauma. It's also important to say that my experience, and I know Nina shares this opinion too, we talk about this all the time, is that the lion's share of people we work with, the largest majority, also report some form of trauma, if not multiple trauma. So intergenerational, for sure, but also all the many, many different forms of trauma that there are, including you know, abuse, including grief and loss, including what we call collective trauma. I think it's worth saying out loud that at the time that we are recording this now, regardless of when our listeners may be listening to this, that this is the end of the first week of the war between Israel and Hamas, and it is a completely shattering experience for everyone involved. I I know the three of us share that. And there's a collective experience that's happening, right? So for many who are right on the ground, and even for all of us here at a distance, right, we are in survival mode. There's a shock level, there's there's some grief, and we don't know what the future holds. But I promise you that these events change people forever. Some in ways yes. sometimes for the better, and in some ways not for the better. But it changes right. us forever. 
And I think the role of drama cannot be under- overstated. Yeah, I just would like to add, since you brought that up, I mean, I don't consider my food issues, my disordered eating over the years, I, I do think there's trauma and trauma and like, there's a war going on. And I just want to make sure we have perspective on this, that there, there are levels of trauma and not to, and- not to like compete, not to have like a no, trauma. No, no, no. Right. Well, but it's a whole other conversation for us to unpack about, you know, the levels of like the different types of trauma, not levels of trauma, but the different types. And I really want to bring it back to the personal, Rachel, because I, you know, Jenny mentioned grief and loss and what you have experienced in terms of grief and loss is extreme. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to open that conversation with us. So in 2014, my husband, Seth, father of my kids, died by suicide. He was a tremendously loving father, an accomplished professor of robotics at MIT. He had never been diagnosed with any kind of severe mental illness. He was high functioning. And not to get into all of the details of the day, but he jumped off a bridge near our home. And my kids were at day camp. At the time, I had to pick them up from camp and tell them the news. And needless to say, it was a catastrophe. I mean, it was, you know, I'm writing an essay now. And, you know, I literally thought we are doomed. Like that day, my older daughter, who was 11 at the time, my younger daughter was eight. And my older daughter said to me, are we ever going to be happy again? And I said to her, Yes, but I completely didn't believe it. And flash forward nine and a half years, I remarried five years after Seth died. My children, who are now 17 and 20, are thriving, beautiful, wise young women. They have close friends, they have close relationships, they have work that they're passionate about. You know, they're 20 and 17, so they have a lot of. Michigas too, but but there we're here, you know. Yeah. And just the realization that sort of you have to hold on to the the good in what remains. You know what my mother always says. My mother's eighty seven. She still lives in the Brooklyn apartment I grew up in. But she talks about crumbs of pleasure. Life is all about the crumbs of pleasure. Oh, wow. And um. You know, to bring it back to the food. I was just going to say, imagine if she'd allowed herself slices yeah. of pleasure, right? But okay, right, yeah. exactly, right. <laughs> a whole cake <laughs> of pleasure, right, right. Um, so, I think about whether that, how that trauma. I mean, first of all, it became very clear to me how trauma insinuates itself into your body, right? Can you talk like, more about that? Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was an intellectual thing. What happened to him? But more, it was like dread in my belly, like nausea and dread, and my limbs becoming rubbery, and my heart, you know, heartbreak is actually a, a real physiological thing, right? Yes. And so, you know, those are the obvious signs when it's acute, right? But then over years, you get a, the phone rings at 5 a.m., and of course you think someone died. That's like right. why else would the phone ring? Or I text my kid and they say they're going to be home. My, my kids, you know, is going to be home 
in 10 minutes and 20 minutes pass. And I'm like, where are you? Where are you? And you just start getting that like, uh, I've got to find them, you know? So whether it's actually diagnosable PTSD or just Mm -hmm. garden variety, residual trauma, it stays with you. I'm not, I'm not sure that ever goes away. You know, I mean, I think it diminishes. It's not as acute. I think there were people who for years, you know, after 9-11 occurred, every time they heard a plane, they ducked. You know, I mean, certainly here in New York, that was the case uh, where I am. Yeah. Yeah. I I was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to my job at the Wall Street Journal on 9-11, and I never really liked flying. And then after that, I was just, I had so like the perfect excuse to hate flying. But to your point, the other thing that I connect with food and trauma is um, a lot of it's about a sense of control, trying to control our environment, control our bodies. And one thing with trauma is you realize you have no control. We had this charmed life. He was a professor at MIT. I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. We had these lovely daughters. Like You live in this bubble and then in a moment, everything changes. And there's something very precious. There's something very precious about that, right? And we don't appreciate right. these things often, at least until they're threatened or until we lose them. Right. And then right. there's guilt that sometimes follows, like, gee, why didn't I realize this while it was happening? And sometimes you do, but everything yes. is tentative. Everything. And it goes right. against our. Uh, existential beliefs to even ever think about it. I think if we all thought about it all the time, you know, we'd all get into a state of entropy. But the point is that when it comes up and we're reminded, it's it's very shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think a lot of food disorder, you know, eating disorders are about control. Like for me, I've had various binge purge. I was a dancer in college. I was in that whole dance perfect body culture. And you, you know, you try to not, you try to control and control and control and like manipulate your body into some, you know, ideal. And I think, you know, it's like, you can't control the real part of your life. So you try to control your food. And if interestingly, the one time in my life where I felt like I was really eating quote unquote, normally, and sort of what I wanted was during my two pregnancies. Isn't that something? Mm. But it was kind of like, okay, I have to be, like, I'm eating for them. So now I have to eat like in a good way of what I want, like what I'm craving and listen to my body more. I'm so glad you said that. There are so, so many people that we've treated where the, the behaviors have been so active. And then by some miracle, they really do become pregnant. And it's a different experience. Mostly for most women, it's a different experience. Like, okay, wait, I'm feeding another. That's right. Oh, and I better be careful. And by the way, my body's supposed to grow. People are going to expect that it's going to grow. So I don't have to worry if my body size grows or it changes. And it's it's an interesting phenomenon, except somewhere in the week after they give birth, something kicks in, in addition to postpartum depression that may be there. And that's a very, that's a very strenuous time for them. So Rachel, I'm curious to know, I I know you have a book coming out in the spring of 2024. I think it's called Us After. 
which is available, I know, to pre-order on Amazon. I've already done so. Tell us uh, just a little bit about that book. And I mean, I'm assuming that it has something to do with the loss of your husband. Yes. Here's the advanced reading copy. I'm showing it to you on screen. Oh, that's fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's us after a memoir of love and suicide. And because I'm a writer and a journalist, I often metabolize my life into stories and words on the page. And so really shortly after Seth died, I started thinking in terms of like, oh my God, this is a story. <laughs> the other day, my one of my daughters said to me, do you ever feel like you're exploiting your family with these stories you write? And I was like, yeah, kind of, but in a positive way. So I've been thinking about our lives and his life and our transformation into, you know, from one family of four to, you know, the three of us, my daughters and I, we became this kind of unit, you know, like we morphed into this, you know, unit. And then uh, I wrote another essay about, you know, when my older daughter went to college at NYU and we dropped her off, it was like our band was breaking up and we had to let go of, you know, one band. And so the book is, you know, largely it's all people would come up to me after they heard about his suicide and they'd be like, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine what you are going through. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And part of me was like, okay, I'm going to write this down. So you don't have to imagine you can, you can read about it. And what I tried to do, obviously there's a lot of, you know, me trying to figure out like what happened, but the book is sort of some of that and some of my like obsessive digging to figure it out, to figure it out. And then ultimately realizing that like my energy and my life really should be spent not trying to figure out his death, but trying to live my life. Right. And so sometimes we just can't find the answer. Like there wasn't an aha moment where I found, you know, the answer to what drove him to suicide. Like there was a scene where I actually found the key to a safe deposit box that was in our basement. And I thought, okay, maybe there's like something here that will explain Mm. there was like a financial situation or something happened at work or something, but the safe was empty. And that was kind of like this metaphor. Like I will never know what was in his brain and what that kind of depression does to, to like, for someone to lose perspective to such a degree. But I realized like, okay, we have to pivot. I have these kids. I'm here. You know, what choice do I have but to get up in the morning and keep going? And so I tried to sort of walk through that. And it's kind of the five first five years after after his death, up until mm-hmm. I got remarried. And then my husband has a daughter. So I have a stepdaughter and just rebuilding family. What a gift. Wow. What, what a gift that you've created in this book. I mean, you will touch so many, many lives. I know that there's a chapter within that book called Food is Love. As you can imagine, we're a little intrigued. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of food in this book. We decided, so Seth died we had both turned 50 the year he died and we both had very different parties for ourselves. And 
he died two months after his 50th birthday party where his, his kind of party was like everybody over the house, kids, barbecue, casual, capture the flag in the park across the street. You know, mine was like a fancy dinner. But so the year after he died, my kids and I decided that we would try to recreate that party for him mm. after death. And so for the five years after his death, we had a party every year with the same people who kind of wow. saved us that first year, like all those women and, and men too, who just like were with me and took my calls in the middle of the night and brought me food and made sure I had enough protein and slept my kids around when I couldn't be two places at once. And so people would bring the same food and became this like very important tradition. You know, they'd be like, are we having the party? Yeah, of course we're having the party. But Seth's family, so his father's Jew, for, they're both from New York, but his mother's Italian. And they had a very strong cooking history amongst the women in his family. I like, would imagine. And, yeah. And so, um, double whammy. Of cultures, right? Okay. How do you, <laughs> yeah. you can't go wrong. So his okay. grandmother, he was very close with his grandmother, Nana, who lived in the Bronx. And Christmas was like a huge deal. So I wrote about the first Christmas dinner I went to at his house. I can read a little bit and then. Please. Sure, we'd love it. While you're finding your chapter, let me also just say that one of the most healing aspects of trauma is community. It's not meant to sweep away what happens, but community is where you find support, validation, hope, and hope for sure. It's just uh, one of the most important elements if you're fortunate enough to really make sure that you're part of at least one community, if not several. That's really where I think a lot of the healing takes place. Absolutely. I, I was in a grief group and saw the difference between me, who had this tremendous community, many communities, my kids' school community, my girlfriends, my writing friends, and my family, and people who didn't have that support. And it was day and night. You know, it's like talk about there's trauma and then there's trauma. When you don't have that support, it just multiplies the pain. It's just important to say that for people that have community, it's not that if you don't, you're just this lonely person. What it means is that when you have community, you can see yourself through others. You know, you're not just looking at your version of yourself. You are in this container this nourishing container of health and healing just from being with people who know you in some way, who share your pain with you. Uh, and, you know, again, right. as we go through what we're going through right now, that's a, that's a critical piece. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so this is a Christmas Eve dinner. Nana and her two daughters constructed the menu for days, marinating, baking, prepping, It wasn't just the voluminous offerings, though, that made the meal. It was also the precision and pride emanating from every dish. On Christmas Eve, each of the seven fish courses was introduced like a prodigy, a pigtailed child playing box sonatas in preschool. To start, there was a shrimp cocktail on ice served with two separate dipping sauces, one extra spicy with a few shakes of Worcestershire sauce. The calamari from the local fishmonger was lightly seared in a pan, served hot and crisp. Anchovies sometimes prompted a story from Seth's father, 
not about anchovies, but sardines, grilled and eaten straight off the boat along the Tagus River in Lisbon. The main course, one of the few that lasted over the years, was linguine with fresh clams, served in an oversized white ceramic bowl, with Parmesan so fresh you could almost see its shavings quivering against the silver-edged serving bowl. The cod was always my favorite, simmered with plump tomatoes, black olives, and capers. Seth's mother noted this preference and for years made sure to let me know in advance, I've got the cod ready. (laughs) Then came dessert. Chocolate ricotta cheesecake, a grain pie from the only bakery left on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx that still made them, and a dozen varieties of cookies, small gems dipped in almond paste, dark chocolate, powdered sugar, and Nana's strufoli, deep-fried dough balls stacked in a pyramid and coated in honey, candied fruit, and sprinkles. That first year of my relationship with Seth, I was on my very best behavior, wanting so much to be part of a tradition-rich family, this family, where the women passed down recipes on index cards splattered with olive oil. So I ate everything. Here, passing on a dish had significance and offered triggered a series of questions. Why? Why would you not indulge in this pleasure, this taste that we've enjoyed for generations? Oh, Rachel, there's, it's so, first of all, you're writing, right? The smells come, the images come, the writing is just exquisite. And the other is that it really, what you just wrote speaks to exactly her story on a plate, how there's so much heritage in our food. There's so much love. There's so much history. It's loaded. It's potent. So loaded. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, just like it's all so loaded. Like I take a bite of coffee ice cream and I just go right to my grandmother. That's what she always had. Like that was her treat, you know, and how foods, you know, Proust's Madeline, like how foods just transport us. The irony of like me having food disorders throughout my life and just trying to control and restrict is that I really love food. Like I, you know, I'm like a foodie in my own messed up sense. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really enjoy good food. And it's funny how um, I recently took my older daughter out to dinner in New York at like a beautiful place. And we had to, of course we had to have dessert. And she was so happy watching me eat dessert. She, mm. I could just, yeah, like she's just she loved watching me enjoy food. You know, it was a it was a yeah. it was a true pleasure for her. It's almost its own podcast, right? About why we don't <laughs> allow ourselves just the pleasure of food, right? Food is yeah. nourishment and it's basic and it's to survive, right? And there are aesthetic parts of it and there are heritage parts of it and we just don't allow ourselves sometimes yeah. because we just think we shouldn't. And, you know, I I really do believe that uh, most people, uh, if not all, have some relationship with food that is uncomfortable for them. It's just all along a spectrum. That that chapter is just, uh, it's gorgeous. It's just a a, a beautiful read. So uh, we should tell everyone again that the name of the book that's coming out is Us After, Us, after, and be out in the spring, but it's uh, available for Pre-order. Pre-order on Amazon. And it's just a delight to have you with us. 
Um, any any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us about just the whole idea of trauma and, and all that you've written about? I guess my final thoughts are what we were saying about pleasure. Like, you never know where it's going to come from, when it's not going to be there. And, you know, I come back to my mother's drums of pleasure. Like, we are allowed to have it and we should we should take it when we can. Mm, Rachel, the, honestly, tears in my eyes as you speak, right? Like, let's live life. And you so beautifully have spoken to the complexity of life and the many layers. And I know Jenny and I are about to so grateful to have you in this conversation. Would you tell people how they can stay in touch, how they can learn about your work? Sure. Yeah, as you said, it's uh, the book Us After a Memoir of Love and Suicide is uh, available now on Amazon for pre-order, but you could also read more of my writing and essays about loss and grief and love and tattoos and going on a date for the first time as a middle-aged woman and all of that on my website, which is rachelzimmerman.net. And I really appreciate you guys talking about this topic. I could talk about it forever and we should have a part two. Do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel, thank you. Thank you. Yes, Rachel Zimmerman, thank you for being with us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to Her Story on a Plate. Keep in touch with us at herstoryonaplate.com. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Thank you.